Welcome to the Five Star Podcast. My name is Tom Savage. Hope you're having a good week. Um, you probably had a good weekend. Ireland won a Grand Slam on Saturday. And in the last uh, two days, Sunday, Monday, and now this morning, on Tuesday morning, um, I've had a good look back at the game. The Wally ratings for this game are out already. Um, so, have a read of them. I think, looking at the game back, um, first thing that came to me was, and by the way, before I even get started on that, what a busy day I've had. Busy morning. Making lots of little phone calls. Lots of little phone calls to very important people. Um, if you're in the secret club, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, a very interesting morning. Anyway, about that. The winning of this Grand Slam, what it means for Ireland, I suppose, is... One, it's living up to expectation. Um, Ireland had... A lot of expectation coming in this season uh, into the Six Nations. The biggest challenge, like I think Ireland won the Six Nations when we beat France. We managed not to lose it uh, in the intervening games against um, Italy, um, not Italy, Scotland and England. Um, two sides who are uh, have strengths, real strengths, but are flawed sides also. And I think looking at the way that Ireland came through uh, the Scottish game and then the difficulties that they had in this game for around 60 minutes it feels good it doesn't feel necessarily like the sort of bland excellence that I just I, I can't get behind like uh, you know uh, I see a lot of the coverage around around Ireland at the moment is similar to the coverage around Leinster because to be fair it's the same people and they're kind of making out like you know you, you can sum up Irish rugby in a in a, in a LinkedIn post even a chat GPT written LinkedIn post. But for me, look, it, that takes all the soul out of it. Like I was talking a little bit about this in the Wally ratings, about how I look at serial winners on Twitter. about And, and like these guys have this weird fixation with the winning of trophies and that it is the ultimate purifier when it comes to understanding things about the game there was even an article this morning i think i was reading it by Fintan o'toole just man um a very very weird piece um gone about how andy farrell is from from up north northern england and he has none of these notions that irish rugby supposedly has that that allows then ireland to win a grand slam and like it just a lot of nonsense, like a lot of rubbish. First of all, it assumes that there is no working class people involved in Irish rugby before the arrival of Andy Farrell, which I can tell you is absolutely not true. And like, second of all, that there's some sort of, um, I suppose, kind of, like I said, purity to winning trophies. Like Ireland won a Grand Slam this year, and it's great. Like, as in, I'm not going to say that 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 winning trophies isn't the aim of professional sport. It absolutely is. But I think for me, it always comes down to how sport makes you feel. And I think that if you're focusing just on trophies, I think that strips 
the context out of all the games that you could watch and the build up to that if you only think about finals it gets rid of the journey it gets rid of the story i wrote on twitter after the game on on sunday um about how you know the 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 ship of theseus paradox which is if a ship which goes on a long journey and along the way on that journey individual bits of the of the um ship are replaced and they're uh, replaced with different parts along the way if you replace all the parts to a certain point when there's nothing left of the original ship is it still the same ship my answer to that question always is team sports because you're always brought on a journey in this game and i'm just going to talk about rugby but it's the same for all team sports where you never get the chance to replace the parts that are now you know what, what will end up being a technically different boat without the older parts getting you to the point where you could do that if we have an acceptance that there are two states for a boat to be in one on the water and traveling two sunk or in dry dock where it's not going anywhere you want to avoid those two for you to be going on a journey moving forward you have to have a boat that can take you the important steps along the way and i think that a lot of the coverage over the last couple of days has focused very much on the last couple of steps of this journey which have led to a very good grand slam uh, for ireland i mean you look at the the margin of victory in those games i think you can't you can't say that this isn't the the best irish side that there has ever been with regards to their ability to win at the top end now but my point of this is is that the guys who got the journey started the fellas who were getting this show on the road and i'm talking about the late 90s early 2000s they deserve as much of the credit for what ireland are achieving now as what the players now are achieving so when i look at the you know guys like paul o'connell guys like ronan o'gara guys like john hayes guys like brian o'driscoll guys like uh dennis hickey guys like gervin dempsey like you know even guys like Ma- you know malcolm o'kelly leading leading on to donnaco callahan guys like A- anthony foley guys like jamie heaslip guys like dennis leamy like these guys helped to push ireland to where we are now because they were the boat that was then they have since all been replaced you can look at it now and say it's a completely different ireland side it's not they're only where they are now because of where those those guys got them to you look at a guy like stephen ferris what he did in the in an irish jersey same with sean o'brien we're coming up to the likes of cj stander the likes of like i said ronan o'gara there's guys who have been here who are parts of earlier builds in this team and it's for me I think it's important to go, you know, how important guys like Keane Healy, guys like Johnny Sexton are to this team, um, who have won it all and who have, like, I think Keane Healy in particular has won everything that Ireland have won in the modern era when it comes to from the first Grand Slam on. He has been an ever-present in that team. I think that in itself is something that needs to be looked at and something that we need to appreciate because it's it takes a certain type of, of, of part in an engine once it's going at high gear to keep that going and to push you on right but it's the guys and it's the parts of the car that help you get going from a standing start they for me deserve a lot of the credit and i think that's something that 
I, I'm thinking about a lot over the last couple of days because I can't look back, I can't look at this team and not see along the way the different parts that have built to where we are now. And I think that's something that I, I, I personally think anyway is important. You may not, other people may not, but I think it is. And um, yeah, no, I, I think that when I'm looking at those serial winners, right, the guys who are just only literally hyper-focused on trophies, nothing else matters. Every time you lose, you're an idiot. Every time you win, unless you win a trophy, it doesn't matter. That, to me, gets rid of a lot of the soul of the game because sometimes you only get to win a trophy because you bottled one or because you bottle a ton of semifinals. That that gets you into a position where you can become a serial winner. And look, some teams don't need that. Some teams do. And I think it's just one of those uh, games, I suppose. Uh, I think I'm talking about the game now on Saturday where Ireland had to come through some really tough moments. And I think that makes it better and more enjoyable for me to see a team pushing through things. Because you could look at it and go look that there's like the, the French game was the biggest test there. And Ireland played their best rugby in that game. But they learned a lot about themselves against uh, Scotland and they would have learned a lot against themselves against, about themselves against England as well. Now, I think other teams learned a lot about Ireland in that game against England also, but that's for later in the podcast. So, getting down to the game itself, uh, I felt coming in that England would be stripping back a lot of their game. They would up their kicking volume, which they did on both counts. And as a result, they would be a more difficult team to beat. What let England down in the first half was um, because Ireland uh, were abnormally skittish in the first half of this game. Um, There was, like, Tyke Furlong. I'm not sure has he ever played a game as bad for Ireland. Shocking performance from him. (laughs) Like, man. Like, I know it's Tyke Furlong and, like, it's the kind of thing where he's the, the best tight hit in the world. He did not look it on Saturday. He looked rusty. He looked... Like his, like he, he was carrying some sort of, not injury, but his pass action looked laboured. As a result, he was making knock-ons. There was no real pop in his carrying at all. His scrummaging looked a little bit off. Um, Yeah, that was a, a really bad performance from Tyke Furlong on the standards of that, that, that we judge Tyke Furlong on at this stage. You know, I think if you had a guy like, you know, like, like we'll say O'Toole, for example, coming on there, and played the exact same game that Ty Furlong did. Led to be saying he shouldn't go near an Ireland game for another couple of months. Like, which I suppose he won't be doing anyway. But still, <laughs> it's just it's one of those things where I think if that was anybody else other than Ty Furlong, people would be saying, geez, can't wait to get Ty Furlong back. That guy's off the pace. But you look at the, the early going in the game, England mopped up those mistakes. And they forced it because they, put on, they, they had a lot of line speed. We expected that. You know, with, with a Kevin Sinfield uh, coach defence, they're going to have a lot of line speed. Um, but they managed that as well with uh, basically a one-man contest after a two-man tackle um, whenever they got the opportunity. They were looking to try to do both. I think when you're playing Ireland, you have two choices. First one is give Ireland the quick ball that Ireland want and stay alive in the contact. So beat Ireland up in the in the tackle. So hit your double tackle. Both guys get out as quickly as possible. Don't bother with a contest unless there's a really obvious opportunity for you to, you know, jump in and, and look to go for a poach and, or whatever else. And the basic thing is you're keeping guys active in the defensive line. What kills teams with the way that Ireland play, which runs on a rugby league concept itself, is that we play off quick ball. Every time that we hit a ruck, and Ireland had 180-something of them in, the, in this game, they open up 
an offside line. And with that offside line, they're able to pin you in place and then start going pass, pass, pass. And then they're able to work around you. Ireland are a high pass per carry team when we're in an, in an offensive state, when we're looking to try to play attacking rugby, which isn't all the time, but we do it in a specific area. Like, you look at parts of this game in Ireland, we're going, geez, we're actually quite static. Why is that? Why is Why does it look static? Why are the passes so laboured? Why are England getting so much line speed on us? Because England denied Ireland counter-transition space. What does that mean? Uh, I've defined counter-transition rugby on here before. But what Ireland are the best team in the world at at the moment is dictating how you give them uh, transition possession, right? What do teams like to play on? They like to play on turnover ball, right? That's a, a, a cliche. You've heard it a thousand times. It's true, right? It's when the defense is not set. Um, Ireland are a really good transition defense and transition offense team. I'm going to go offense and say it like an American. When you have a, 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 a kick of the ball, right, you are then giving the, 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 the opposition an opportunity and a decision. Are you going to run that ball or are you going to kick it back? If you decide to run it back, Ireland meets you on the gain line. That's the transition defense. And really put pressure on you in those first one or two phases afterwards. They're very good at making sure you don't get a direct line break in those moments, right? You will then, typically, after two or three phases post-transition where you're not making ground, you will then kick back to Ireland. That's then when Ireland enter our transition attack. The same thing happens if you kick the ball to England. England kicked the ball back to us. We have a, a look so we, we have a, a structure and a framework that we like uh, in the open field. We look to try and attack on that. And one thing that are, and you'll always see this with Ireland, is that when Hugo Keenan runs that ball back from the, from the backfield, or Caelan Doris sometimes, when he runs, he hits the middle of the field. And when he hits the middle of the field, when he looks up, um, the transition defense has to cover both sides. Ireland will have two options most of the time. The pod structure will be right there. And that's when Ireland start to up the pace on the ball. Quick ball there. The next rock is quick ball. The next rock is quick ball. And then Ireland will just Ireland will kick the ball at the edge. And they will chase and pressure. And all of a sudden, you're under pressure in your half of the field. You're struggling to exit. You get the ball off the field, but Ireland have the ball back from a line-out. Ireland will maul you. Ireland will break off the maul. And then that's Ireland's structure right there. But Ireland are very good at getting that counter-transition space, which is when you kick the ball back to Ireland... We're very good at hurting you in the first three or four phases after that transition, right? Now, what England did here is they shut down that aspect of Ireland's game for the majority of the game, right? When Ireland kicked the ball to England, what England did was kick it right back and kick it right into the corner. So it's very difficult for Hugo Keenan to run back into centre field if he's running into the, 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 the edge space, for example, like we'll say the, 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 the five metre tram line or the 15 metre line where the line out happens, that tram line there. If he's running directly back into that, defence loves that because they can fan out all across the field. Ireland only have limited options. So he doesn't run those kicks back. He kicks those, right? So what England did really well through Freddie Stewart and later to Owen Farrell, but Owen Farrell did it as well at the same time, is that they returned those kicks with interest any kick that went down the middle was bouncing and had a good chase line after it so 
Hugo Keenan or Mack Hansen or James Lowe didn't have a chance to run that ball back and start up a post-transition phase. They had to kick back in return. Uh, England only made one or two mistakes, really, when it came to their handling of the counter-transition game. And why I feel that's something that the likes of South Africa will be interested in is that like England got the lead in this game and looked not in control, but were, were comfortable enough at times because they were able to um, just hold Ireland. So whenever uh, like Ireland would go through a couple of phases, but they were static, there wasn't enough pace in the ball. England won a few uh, breakdown turnovers. Um, when, when, England, when Ireland kicked, or when England kicked to Ireland rather, they had a great chase lineup. They had Henry Arundel putting a lot of pressure on kickers. It forced a few mistakes out of Mack Hansen, a few, a few mistakes out of Hugo Keenan. That sort of kick pressure would be very interesting to the Springboks, who play a very similar style. Now, what let England down was they couldn't get near Ireland's set piece. The, the Springboks will figure that they can do that, and as well as that, um, shut down other aspects of Ireland's game as well. That's why I think this game the Springboks, even though England lost, will be very, very interested in the manner of how this game played out. Now, we can't talk about this game without talking about Freddie Stewart's red card that happened right before halftime. Ireland could have scored directly after that, you know, off the red card penalty that they had, but uh, England held them out quite well. Um, My opinion on this is that when I first saw it, to me it looked like a rugby collision. And... The reason why I say that is, is earlier in the Six Nations, we saw Liam Williams um, getting uh, taken out, I suppose, by Ian Henderson because they were there was a kick went over. Henderson looked to try and charge it down, changed his body shape, ran into Ian or Liam Williams, and as a result, I think they got a penalty. I think he got a yellow card. I'm not sure. No, he didn't get a yellow card. A penalty only, right? Then you look at earlier in the season, you have Jean Klein on. I think it was Jamie Osborne. Where Jamie, where John Clay is jumping into the air to try and uh, catch a chip, right, or a chipped kick rather than a chip, um, and in, in in like obviously he doesn't get the charge down, he can't disappear or he can't double jump over Jamie Osborne like he's Super Mario, so he runs into Jamie Osborne or, or crashes into him rather, and that ended up being a yellow card, um, and I didn't agree with that then at the time, so if I didn't agree with the Jean Clayne yellow card and I thought that Ian Henderson with the penalty only was fair enough right which I felt it was this one with Freddie Stewart seems like a similar issue to me in that he has very little time to react because when that ball is bobbling forward from um off Mac Hansen that changes the context of what Freddie Stewart had to do he was lining up for a tackle to come in and take man and ball on Hugo Keenan should that offload have gone to hand because it didn't, and it was bouncing towards him, and Hugo Keenan was also coming towards him, while also going down onto the ground to get the ball. I think that was quite a dynamic situation. Freddie Stewart looked to twist his body, so because a lot of people are going to go, oh, he looked to try and catch him with his shoulder and with his elbow. I don't think he was doing that. I think he was looking to try to narrow his profile, right? He was just basically trying to narrow, narrow down his shape, so he wasn't going to be running into Hugo Keenan and giving away a penalty. I'm not, I don't think Freddie Stewart in this instance was talking about or was thinking about oh I'm going to give away a red card or a yellow card. He was just looking I just don't want to give away a penalty here by getting this guy off the ball. So he was looking to make himself as narrow as possible. Basically if you were going to do that you would go to your side. And in that uh, situation there his arm and his elbow have to go somewhere which will be 
down by his side, which is where they were when they made contact with Hugo Keenan. And I think that as a result, because there was so little time to react and the reaction he did have was one of trying to get out of the way and make himself as small as possible. I think that ended up in the situation where Hugo Keenan got the contact to the head and as a result, the red card was given. Now, I can't argue that it was just like, okay, red card, I get it. There was, there was contact to the head, fair enough. I'm not saying that like, oh, it's a scandalous red card. I'm saying that it's harsh, which it was. And I'm saying that because of the potential mitigation that was there, I felt that a yellow card maybe or a penalty only would have sufficed while also acknowledging that Hugo Keenan went off with a HIA and didn't come back on. So to an extent, there's a sort of a justice about that also. But that was my thoughts on it. I felt that because of the knock-on and the the ball bouncing towards him, I felt that that gave him very little time to react. And what he did do it synced up in a bad way with what Hugo Keenan was doing and ended up in a fairly, you know, a fairly um, uh, unfortunate collision. And I, I, I look at, at Freddie Stewart and I'm thinking that without the knock-on and without the ball bouncing towards him, he probably makes a legal tackle there. It's not for me like those tackles that were never legal. I think the, the, the circumstances and the context around it, I think for me, there's a bit of nuance there. Um, I just felt it was quite a harsh red card in the aftermath of that you would feel straight away then that what Ireland will do with England's um, fullback off the field would be to up the kicking volume which Ireland did um, I think the assumption was that England would be unbalanced in the backfield which would mean that there would be uh, poorer returns from their from their kicking which would mean to uh, which would mean more uh, counter transition opportunities for Ireland that would be of a higher quality and that they would be more damaging to England as a result because they would be down one of the key players who would be defending what Ireland tend to do in those situations which is you know move the ball to the wider areas kick and put pressure on and then you could see how that would work and how the concept behind that would be would be decided on and, and, and built on conceptually um, but it didn't really work as designed at least initially England did really well to cover. Uh, Anthony Watson did well. Arundel did well. But uh, Owen Farrell in particular did really well. He kind of dropped back almost like an auxiliary fullback himself. And uh, the quality of his returns um, from the boot were outstanding. And really put Ireland onto the back foot. Like one of the things that will hurt a counter transition game is incredibly high quality kicking returns. So if you can return the kick to Ireland that is better further more accurate when it with regards to positioning um you can actually invert the pressure that counter transition brings back onto ireland and uh, owen farrell did that really well in in, in that in, in that first half he won or second half rather the early we'll say the third quarter he won a um a knock-on out of jimmy o'brien with a, a high kick up the field um he also got um johnny sexton a beaut I think it was him anyway, who got a kick into the backfield. Johnny Sexton was straight away under pressure because he had to readjust from where he originally thought the ball was going. That made him static when he got the ball. Um, the English chase was right on him. He threw a poor pass to Mac Hansen. England were right on that guy as soon as he slipped. Huge pressure at the breakdown. Huge pressure at the breakdown. Ireland kick away poorly. Ireland won the ball back off that line-out, which was just on the line of the 22. But had England took that down and engaged Ireland in the mall, as was the plan, um, 
that would have been a really dangerous situation for Ireland, who at that point were 10-9 down. Um, so it was really, really interesting to see how England managed to invert that aspect of the game. But um, two or three big moments saved Ireland's bacon. Jack Conan made a big play at the mall, which dislodged the ball when England were you know, getting a good run forward. Ireland were looking tired and leggy. Um, and that was a big moment. But Ireland, it, it lifted the siege a little bit. Then uh, Ireland conceded a, a, a scrum penalty, uh, one of three uh, on the next play, which gave England another opportunity. Uh, Ryan Baird got a very Tygburn-esque uh, turnover at the breakdown. And that led to um, a big siege-lifting uh, penalty for uh, for Ireland. Johnny Sexton kicked it down the field. He managed to hit a really good cross-field kick off that line-out that got the perfect bounce, that cut out Anthony Watson and allowed Mac Hansen to drive him over the line for a five-metre scrum. That led then to Ireland being able to go um, close-range phases. And then Bundy Aki puts Robbie Henshaw over the line for a killer try. That when you look at the balance of the game to that point... Uh, it kind of took it beyond England's reach. They are a flawed side. They're not. A, they're not the best attacking side at the moment. They have issues there. Like I was looking at their conditioning. I think I saw Charlie Felix uh, writing or Charlie Morgan rather writing a uh, an article on this with regards to the impact of Alad Walters uh, at England and how it hasn't really been felt yet. You can't build the fitness you need, you know, as a collective over the short amount of time that Adam Walters has been there. Like, the reason why you have an S&C coach like Alan Walters is you tie him in to what your game plan is. I think England are still kind of working that out. Like, you're still trying to figure out what the, the game plan is exactly and how they're going to go to different spreads of the game. Like, I was watching it this season. Like, Ireland's fitness is top tier at the moment. Like, Ireland have a lot of ball and play time anyway. There's very few games where we're not the team who have the most amount of ball and play. Um, But when you look at England over the last couple of games, they had their first game against Scotland was a 40-minute ball and play time, which is huge. Because, uh, again, you look at Ireland versus France was 43 minutes. England-Scotland was 40 minutes. Uh, they went 40 minutes against Wales also. And like you could see that they were like for long periods of that game they were they were ropey like. Um against France they had thirty-five minutes, which will go, well geez, shouldn't that make things a little bit easier for them? It actually made things way easier for France, and as a result, they had their biggest performance of the season so far. Like France realized that they're not a massive on ball team. So over the last well, since the, the game in Lansdowne Road or the Viva Stadium rather um, France have returned to what we are used to from them, which is a huge, high kicking volume, high kicking distance, and as a result, they finished the uh, they finished the season really strongly. But England are in between two states at the moment where they're not quite fit enough. And I will look at you. I will say as well that like losing Freddie Stewart in the manner that they did, going down to fourteen men, made it very very difficult for them to react once Ireland took a decisive lead. And it made it very difficult for them to even win the game at all. But that'll give you just an idea that, yeah, they are building something. Their fitness isn't where it needs to be as of yet. But I think if they stick close enough to the game plan that they had, it's ugly. <laughs> like, it's ugly. They need they need some more power forwards in their pack, in their back five. I think Alex Dombrandt is the guy they've brought in. Um, they're missing a few players as well, obviously. But I think Alex Dombrandt at the moment... Doesn't look like an elite level player for me in that spot. Um, 
just he doesn't seem athletic enough or mobile enough um like but again he's not really performing at that high level in europe either so it's not that like it's not that big a surprise i think england are missing billy vunapola to be honest i think that regardless of what you think about that guy he is or at least was at his top you know at, at his peak an absolute world-class talent and i think that they've struggled to to recreate what he gives them um he's still playing like i don't think he's injured at the moment but they seem to have moved beyond him at the moment and um i don't know i wouldn't be surprised to see him making a comeback because i just felt that england lacked that you know guys who could compress defenders manitou alagi i felt did well at 12 i think that reaction to the game against france you know where they went farrell to alagi and slade actually worked really well but i i think that their conditioning isn't fully right as of yet um, to take advantage well to even kind of get into the same stratosphere as a team like Ireland which they were for 60 minutes but lost decisively in the last in the last 20 now how much of an impact did Freddie Stewart's red card have on that not collapse but how they fell away in the game I'm not sure I think it probably would have happened anyway which is why you know I think the whole drama over the red card to me I'm only looking at it from a point of view is was it a rugby collision or not I don't think it was the winning or losing of the game from an English perspective although Stewart did play very well but I'm not sure looking at that that you know I don't think England would have won you know I think Ireland would have found a way to win anyway but um yeah it, it's interesting anyway to see how that counter transition game how it broke down and, and how different guys reacted to it um I think I think when you look at like you know Jack Conan off the bench did well Ryan Baird had a great game uh, I thought James Lowe and Matt Hansen were okay. James Lowe, again, I felt the quality of his kicking, I just think, is a huge part of what Ireland do well. So I, I kind of rated him highly as a result. Uh, Bundy and Robbie Henshaw were really good. I thought Bundy was the better of the two. Henshaw looked a little bit rusty, uh, but, you know, still really good, obviously. Uh, Jimmy O'Brien did okay off the bench. Not the same level of player as Hugo Keenan, but, you know, not, not many guys are. Um, who else is there? Oh, halfbacks. Uh, Gibson Park was okay. Uh, Johnny Sexton looked at a massive game, and like I wrote there in the Wally ratings, you could easily script a movie where the local hero kind of breaks the the Six Nations record on his last game in the tournament, while also winning a Grand Slam at home for the first time ever in his home stadium in his home city you could write that movie like you absolutely could but people were probably rejected for being a little bit too schmaltzy that it's a little bit okay yeah great oh and he's also the captain is he yeah yeah like it's just it's it's a little bit uh it's a little bit twee for me but that's been johnny sexton's career uh he has had just an outstanding run from when he became the de facto number one um in and around 2012 right and i was speaking about this in the secret club the other day this is not something that ireland have done this time around right there's been vague gestures in the direction of this which is creating and and getting the successor in place um for the incumbent 10 declan kidney hurt himself as a coach of ireland in carrying the water to get johnny sexton embedded in a test level along with a couple of other guys as well uh Ronald Agar at the time was 33 right and I remember thinking he's 33 or 34 and I remember thinking geez he's a bit he's a bit crabbit back then 
Like, obviously, you know, relatively speaking, you know. But when you look at Johnny Sexton now, who's like, oh, he's 37 going on 38. Um, Ireland haven't really created any sort of, of competition or even made an attempt to set up a situation where Johnny Sexton can be challenged as the number one guy at 10. That's like, that has not happened. There might have been an idea that they were going to do that when they moved Carberry. When when they encouraged him to move um, uh, down to Munster, but that didn't work out for a number of reasons. Injury, the main one. Uh, But since then, and I think you look at the Paddy Jackson situation also, through a few spanners and a few works as well. But you look at the the last couple of years with Sexton, at the age he is, it's remarkable that they haven't given guys a proper run. Like, whenever he's been out, he's been out because he's been injured, right? There has been very few occasions when Ireland have gone, okay, we're not going to start Johnny Sexton here in any game that they expect, like, that they think they might lose without him. So, like, they might start, you know, somebody like, like Carberry, for example, against Italy, of the last couple of years and go well look look <laughs> we're not gonna we're not gonna lose to these guys who we can put in whoever there and you know they'll get some valuable minutes there or you'd look at if there was a down game in the autumns you know the six nations like maybe fiji for example like a team who Ireland would expect to win regardless of who's at 10 that's when we've seen those guys if johnny sexton is fit get those opportunities but there hasn't really been a consent a concerted effort to kind of bed somebody in and give them consistent starts even when Johnny Sexton is fit with the idea being that you want to generate a sort of a 1A 1B kind of situation there where you know Johnny Sexton has to really scrap to keep his position which I'm sure he would but I think the fact that he was made captain means that that's never going to happen and isn't going to happen so that's something that, you know, when you look at the, the tail end of Sexton's career, it is going to be a problem for the very first day after the World Cup, whatever happens, Ireland win or lose, will more than likely will be will be without Sexton next year. He's already slowing down. Like he's already at a stage where his performance levels now are a good bit below what they were even last year. It's the it's his intelligence and the quality of his passing that's keeping him and his and his kicking game rather that is keeping him the head above the water, right? But his involvements are getting fewer. When he's passing, he's passing more now than what he was. His balance with regards to the carrying and to the passing is actually quite a bit below what it was. But again, he's such an intelligent player that it, it, it that there's not much in the way of notice. Like, you wouldn't look at it and go, oh, well, yeah, look, he's drastically falling off here. Because, look, he, he isn't. But I, I think that the way that he is kind of slowing down for sure. Um, he is getting taken out of the game a little bit easier than what he was before. Um, that's going to be a problem for the very first day after the World Cup, be it Ireland winning a World Cup final or crashing out in a <laughs> disastrous you know, quarterfinal or slightly less disastrous sec- uh, semifinal. Um, that is something that I think is going to be a massive problem whoever it is like at the moment it looks like it's Ross Byrne I have my opinions on that one way or the other but who it doesn't matter really because whoever it is it's going to be a fucking massive job and Ireland are going to lose games as a result 
there will be a ton of uncertainty as to whether Ireland's framework as it currently runs, like the style of play would even work. Because, like, I think Ross Byrne, right, is a lower quality version of Johnny Sexton. So the same part, just not as high quality. So certain aspects of his game are not at the same level of Johnny Sexton. And I think that is an objective fact because if it was the case that Ross Byrne was even close to Johnny Sexton's ability, then he would have already overtaken him at Leinster. And I'm not just talking about the, oh, well, he already plays more games for Leinster than Sexton does. The important games that Leinster need to win, look who always starts if he's fit. It's always Johnny Sexton. So that's the, like, that's the, 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 the truth of it, I feel. And it, I think it's true for most of the tens at Leinster, to be honest. That, you know, you, I, ideally, nobody would have a fly half who's 37 years of age when you're the number one team in the world, going into a World Cup expecting to win it and thinking, this guy is going to get us through all the way there. That's re- very unlikely, but that's where we are, okay? So, with with that in mind, like, he is slowing down. I don't think he was outstanding here, but he made big plays. And that he's still capable of that. So he's, he's, he's able to make the big plays, to spot the pass, to read the defence, which he's very good at. His pass quality is outstanding, as good as it's ever been. And he gets the game. He understands intimately what Ireland are doing, and this system is set up to compensate for him. Look at the handling that you will see James Lowe doing, that you will see Mac Hansen doing, that you will see Bundy Aki doing. They will all step in and take on some of the reps from Johnny Sexton. And they all offer different things in that spot at 10. And to allow Sexton time and space to make his passes, to get his kicks away. And he's just really accurate. He doesn't make mistakes. And we did know, to be fair, he did make a mistake in this game with his kicking. But when it comes to the big moment in attack, to find that pass or to find that kick into space, he can still get that pass. He can still make that kick. And the, again, it's the quality of the roll of the ball off his hands as good as it as good as it's ever been it's just it's it's outstanding and it is like part of the reason why he still works at this level as as the the starting 10 is because the quality of his um the quality of his um his his passing in and his kicking is still outstanding so yeah uh, i didn't think he was great uh neither did the gibson park was great it all comes down to the pack for me uh my player of the tournament from an Irish perspective is Andrew Porter yes he has issues in the scrum but he is Ireland's most important player by far there is nobody who can replace him to even close to the same level people I I said this on Twitter and people are going oh Johnny Sexton is most important player he's not they can replace elements of what Sexton do the team won't work as well but you can get by without Andrew Porter Ireland's breakdown game is vastly reduced. Ireland's physicality is drastically reduced. Our line-out game goes way backwards because he is an outstanding lifter in the line-out as well. Like, the scrum? Look, maybe somebody could come in, and come in and be a better scrummager, but at the moment, the scrum isn't really hurting Ireland. It looked like it might for a while in this game, but it didn't in the end, and that's the important thing. Now, the World Cup was a different beast. That's going to be higher-pressure games, and there's going to be pressure on him there as well. But that, to me... I think you look at Andrew Porter's impact in this tournament. He can play 70 plus minutes. He can do 80 minutes. You know, he can do that. The quality of his involvements at the breakdown are outstanding. His ball carrying when he's called upon, he's physical. He does not go backwards. 
He's a great defensive player. He makes his tackles. He's a great uh, breakdown threat also. Um, like I said, the line-out lifting on both sides of the ball is outstanding. Um, he, for me, is irreplaceable. You cannot replace him. Like, Dan Sheen is outstanding, but you can bring in Ronan Kelleher and you get a lot of the same stuff. And, and like, high-level stuff. And the difference between the two is high-level stuff. So it's like you're you're getting something a little bit different, but it's just as good, if that makes sense. With Andrew Porter, there are guys who can come in who are... Like, Dave Kilcoyne is playing very well at the moment. Uh, Keen Healy is... Um, still playing. And he is a guy who, like, has a value... To, to, to the team at this stage like he's not the athlete he was he gives you a lot of versatility on the bench that you know otherwise you wouldn't have defensively he will make his tackles and stuff like that but he is nowhere near the player Andrew Porter is now and now look the scrum like I get that the scrum thing is is, is a little bit hypocritical because I've criticized them on that but because the scrum is not costing Ireland games Andrew Porter is a world-class talent and is like as a front row or as a front five forward forget about the scrum for a second Tell me somebody who's better. Tell me somebody who gives you more around the field than Andrew Porter does. Like, there are guys who might be bigger, more on-ball dominant carriers, but in the system Ireland run, Andrew Porter is untouchable. He is just outstanding. My player of the tournament, by far. And, like, you look at some of the other guys in this game, like, Andrew Porter had another outstanding game here. But, like, you look at uh, Dan Sheehan, was playing hurt, I think. He wasn't fully fit. Um, but he got through it, scored a really deci- de- decisive try also. He has a ton of rugby under his belt this year, by the way. Uh, Tyke Furlong, I thought he had an awful performance. Um, but yeah, look, he will get better, obviously, over time. Uh, the second row, Ryan Baird, I thought was very, very impressive. Uh, James Ryan had, had a decent game. Like, I, I think he was I think he was good. Like, I'm not sure he was the, the kind of the Paul O'Connell reborn that I've seen him being talked about. It's happening again this week where I saw some fellas were going, James Ryan's back. Where is he back from? Like, where? Like, what is he back from having done or not done? Like, I hear this every time he's had a good game. Oh, he's back. He's back. James Ryan is back, baby. And it's like, look, I, I think he's, he's at the stage now where he's a, a very good player. But I don't think he's in the elite level when it comes to second row forwards. For whatever reason, I'm just thinking the quality of his breakdown entries... In, the, in this Six Nations have been erratic in a way that other second rows are not. He's supposed to be the guy who can do everything, right? I think the quality of his ball carrying is overstated. His defence is good. He's consistent. I don't see him absolutely nuking guys in defence though, making massive dominant stops. Like, I th- like I said, I think he's good. And I think he's, I, I don't know, it's like whether the whole idea that, that, that he's just this elite level talent is, because like, I don't think he's that. It would be great if he was. But I don't think he is. And like he will be a very good player for Ireland for the years to come. And he will. There's nobody going to replace him anytime soon. Um, But I, I feel that a lot of the praise for him has been going over the top a small bit. And I think most of that praise should be going to Andrew Porter, to be honest. Um, But you look at the, the, the back row here, Peter Romani, another great game. Like there was a lot of shit housing, you know, when, I, when Jack Conan came on. Jack Conan played very well also, by the way. But... Like Peter Manny's game in that first half, there were a few moments there where Ireland were under serious pressure and they needed somebody who could come in and take that line out. Put the ball up there, who'll go and get it for you? Peter Manny will. And he did the same thing, even to a higher standard, this week compared to last week against Scotland. 
outstanding just getting up there getting that ball winning a penalty but the spring he still has the aggression he still plays with the the quality of his breakdown work again was outstanding he kept Ireland in this game when England were looking to go 3, 6, 9, 12, like Peter Romani came back, made massive plays all the way through. Now, Jack Conan came on and made a different type of play, but he's a different type of player. Like, different type of players come on and they give you different things. Like, Jack Conan had a really good carry and a really good offload to Dan Sheehan for a the killer try, really, that could put it well beyond England. Great stuff from him. That was a really good moment. But what Peter Romani did in the first half and for the first 50, 60 minutes or whatever it was, was also very valuable. And I think that England's ability to counter Ireland's primary game meant that people were looking at Jack Conan coming on at around the 68-minute mark and then Ireland pulling ahead as being, oh, that was the big difference maker. The big difference maker was Johnny Sexton. (laughs) Getting a big moment like he's very good at doing and Ireland taking advantage. That knocked the stuffing out of England from there. And with that... And uh, you could say Jack Conan's big play at the mall. But we've seen Peter Manny make big plays at malls. This is not unique to him. So, look, I, I think that um, the Peter Manny was outstanding. Jo- Josh van der Fleer, again, just is everywhere. Like, he is just constant. Um, really good performance, too, from him. And I thought that uh, Caelan Doris was way quieter than normal. Um, but I think he was obviously carrying an injury and playing hurt, which he was. So, that can be completely excused. He had a great tournament. Um, but yeah, no, I think overall, like, good performance and great to see it. Like, I, like looking at it at the end, I was sitting down there with my daughter. She was watching it. Didn't give a shit, really, about what was going on on the TV. I wasn't even sure whether she, whether she could even fully see it because I had to go quite close. Um, but yeah, it was just really emotional to see it there because, like, she saw her first Grand Slam and she was six weeks old. I was 27 when I first saw mine. And for the majority of that time, all I saw was Ireland losing. And... um that was like you know again just to see the the change that's kind of what i'm talking about the journey you go on with teams because the the change in expectations and the change in standards somebody's got to raise them you know somebody's got to raise them for those standards to be the standards and uh those guys did it and it's just it made me just think back and forth i keep rebounding between the early 2000s and now and the early 20 or the late 2010s and now and it's just you know it's it, it's all connected i think that's something that i began to think about more and more as uh, this week went on anyway we have a few uh reader comments and questions in the five star podcast this week uh this one was from ra1978 uh please review jamie heaslip's entire linkedin profile in the francis higgins connor mcnamara character uh voice um i don't know who that last guy is but i do know that jamie heaslip has been um writing some very interesting and thought-provoking um columns on LinkedIn that are really interesting and really what they don't make me want to do is hammer my head into the cistern of the toilet they don't make me want to do that which is I think very important to to stress um but the second part of your question is uh, also what is up with Furlong worried a a little worried like when it comes to like front five forwards like in the modern game in particular nobody is Wolverine um except maybe for for Peter Armani maybe but nobody is Wolverine in that the game takes a toll on you and what people don't get a lot of the time is is that when you get injuries I think people understand that you get you get an injury and then you you recover from the injury you go do rehab and you recover 
and then you're you're back to being the guy you were that isn't always the case especially when you are kind of heading into your into your 30s or, or your late 20s or your early 30s injuries can take a toll on you and like calf injuries in particular are a bollocks especially for a prop like they can take away a lot of your 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 your, your pop your explosivity your your acceleration your ability to brace and hold out um you know certain moments where you're under a lot of physical pressure and like it's a very damaging and, and attritional position to play in and like what Tyke Furlong's always been really good at is he's been such a natural athlete that he's able to make the sort of carries and the sort of passing movements that you expect from midfielders at you know 120 kg and over it over the last number of seasons it feels like he's been injured a lot more now I did a, a look at this the other day. He played all the Six Nations last year. He played all three games in the in the the, the tour in um, New Zealand, as far as I'm aware. Uh, but the injuries that he's had with the calf injury, like they can be just difficult. They can be tough to recover from. They can be tough to get back to your best from. And sometimes you don't get back to your best at all. I'm not concerned as of now because look, we'll come back out for Leinster, I think, against Ulster, and you know should be able to you know be be closer to his best there but like if the calf injuries and other knocks start piling up like guys end up being less than what they were like it's just it's it's the reality of the game especially if you're a front five forward especially if you're in the front row because it's so attritional um so i'm not fully worried yet but kind of getting there i need to see something to kind of turn around for him because like you know finley beelham's a great player but he's not tight furlong at his best but if tight furlong isn't at his best then it becomes a, l- a lot more open uh, with regards to the concept of it. But the reality is, is that Tyg Furlong has a massive central contract signed. He will be the starter tight head the minute he's fit. It's just that we hope that he returns to the level that is close to what he was at his peak. Maybe that's gone beyond him now. And like, and, and like that's j- just the reality where like Peter Romani, for example, at the moment is playing very well. But like athletically, is he as explosive? Is he as agile as what he was when maybe he was 28 20 you know 26 27 no i mean he can't be but the player he is now was very good he adapts to that it's harder for for props to do that because you can always change certain aspects of what you do if you're in the back five you know or if you're a midfielder or a winger or you know whatever but when you're a tight head prop like there is going to be tons of pressure going through you at the scrum like that's going to be happening you're going to be lifting in the line out that's going to be happening so like if your ability to weather that decreases your ability to do other things decreases as well and your value decreases so that's something to keep an eye on but i i i i don't think that he's on a terminal decline but like i need to see something turning around because like we need that guy if ireland want to win a world cup we need tag furlong firing at his very best because what we saw on saturday were that to happen against the, the spring box or whatever else can't can't be having that um ec23 says tom do you think ireland do and or will struggle against the uh, off-ball intelligent kicking teams in general or was it an off day with the huge emotion and several players playing not long after returning from injury furlong being the main example i would say yes that's the, the the emotion guys coming back from being injured that all plays a part nerves as well play a part because you're you're playing at home you're hearing all week about guys looking for tickets all the buzz and everything else like the anthems as well can throw guys off um so yeah that that explains part of it for sure 
But I think Ireland's system, as it currently is, will struggle with off-ball game. Like, I wrote in the Wally ratings that, like, teams like La Rochelle can look to on-ball Leinster. So when basically, when when Leinster or Ireland kick the ball to La Rochelle, I'm going to say Leinster here because Ireland won't be playing uh, La Rochelle, technically. Um, but what La Rochelle are really good at doing, we saw it in the Champions Cup final last year, is that they're really good at when the when Leinster kick the ball to them, they just don't give the ball back. So they're really good at retaining the ball over multiple phases, making Leinster defend them, and then having guys who can create those line breaks, force compressions, and you know make something happen. That's what that's what uh, La Rochelle did through the likes of, of uh, Will Skelton and Gregory Aldrich. They had that size and power and were able to do that. But you need to be a club side to be able to play with that sort of attacking cohesion. A test side can't hope to do that if they're bringing in a ton of guys from elsewhere so if you're bringing in a lot of guys from you know from Toulouse from La Rochelle from Stade Francais from Racing or whatever else or from Bordeaux like you can't get those guys playing super cohesive rugby in the short amount of time you have them together that just it just won't work same way that the Springboks can't do it like so what you'll have to do is at test level is play off-ball rugby, which you can do with very little cohesion. You can kick long, you can chase hard, you can have a massive set piece that you can drill repeatedly, and that will cause trouble for Ireland. And, like, I look at the last time when the Springboks played um, Ireland in uh, the Aviva, I'm looking at that game and thinking, do you know what? They played that game without a recognised 10, which you need to have to play an off-ball game effectively. And we're still within a kick of a ball of being tied in that game and could have arguably won it as well so I think the Springboks will see that game against England and be reassured that the concepts that they are still kind of having as foundational concepts for them are still working Um, but I think the the way that the, the scrum is being refereed at the moment will be a bit of a fly in the ointment there because it, it's basically very difficult now to get a return on um scrum pressure which kind of takes some of the sting off box kicking and shorter contestables so that kind of changes up what teams will have to do and could have impacts on selection also so that's something i think will be that'll be um important as it goes on but whether ireland can adapt to it i think ireland's game at the moment is the game that we have uh we didn't really kick an awful lot distance wise we're behind uh france and england uh, significantly so maybe we can up the volume on that um, but the system that Ireland have at the moment is a system that is built like this is the system that we believe will beat most teams in the world and we're, we've are we beaten every team that's worth beating uh, This uh, in, in this calendar year or the, the last we'll say the last 12 months we'll say so like that puts Ireland into a position where we are favourites coming into this World Cup and uh, dealing with that expectation and the pressure that comes with it is going to be another thing but I, th- I think these guys can do it I think they have the fortitude to do it and they have all the confidence in the world to do it like I think when Ireland came into the World Cup year last time out in 2019 they were shattered physically from the exertions of the previous year I think this time around Ireland are fresher Ireland are having are playing a system at the moment that the teams in the Six Nations for the most part don't have the personnel to live with or in some cases don't understand the game that they were playing against so for the world cup i think ireland the biggest challenge obviously is going to be the spring box we will beat scotland again 
and then it comes down to are we playing France or the All Blacks? And uh, this week in the in the the papers, uh, Steve Hansen was having a he had a, a backhanded pop at Ireland about how if New Zealand had Ireland's record in World Cups, they'd be called chokers. Uh, especially when the last time out Ireland went in as number one team in the world into the World Cup year, we actually didn't go into the World Cup as the number one ranked team in the world, but we were um, number one at November, the November before year out. So, like, he was basically kind of going, look, Ireland have no record whatsoever in the World Cup. They have expectation on them now. How will they live with that? They've been chokers up until now. Because that's essentially what he said. Like, I know he said, oh, technically he said that the All Blacks would be called chokers if they had Ireland's record. But basically what he's saying is that Ireland are chokers at the World Cup. And it's true. Like, Ireland have choked multiple World Cups. So that's the pressure to get beyond that stage now. And look, there's going to be nothing easy for Ireland here. Like... Playing the Springboks in your World Cup pool is one thing. But, like, if Ireland, for example, were to lose against the Springboks and end up coming up against, we'll say France win the, the other pool. Like, playing France, in France, in a French World Cup, like, in maybe probably even in the Stade de France, can you think of a more difficult game to play knowing that France know now that what they tried against Ireland in the first half in the Viva Stadium a couple of weeks ago doesn't work for them. And what actually works for them is to go for off-ball, heavy kick pressure, which they did for the rest of the tournament and beat everybody out the gates. That's going to be as challenging a quarterfinal as you can get. And then that's if we beat the Springboks. Maybe we end up playing the All Blacks. That in itself is going to be incredibly difficult because they will have learned an awful lot over the last year too. And look, they've got they've got some adjustments to make as well, but I, I can't believe that the All Blacks will stay as bad as they were last year for long. Whether they will or not, we'll wait and see. But that's an incredibly difficult quarterfinal, whatever way you slice it. So if Ireland could get beyond either one of those two, I think we'll win. I think we'll win the whole thing. And that's kind of the massive challenge that awaits this team but that's for that's for later in the year for now it's a grand slam it's a great day it's something that you can remember and look back on and just remember who you saw or who you were there with and who you were talking about it with afterwards because that's what sport is to me it's about the people that we experience sport with that's what makes sport fun and that's what makes it enjoyable and look sometimes you're lonely and sometimes you don't have anybody and this was me like when I was like first starting Three of Kings, like I didn't really have, I didn't have anybody, and sport was the thing that I was able to throw myself into, and enjoy. And if that's you, you don't have somebody to to, to experience sport, you know, to experience the sport with. First of all, I don't think that'll stay that way for long. But even if it does, like enjoy the enjoyment and the pleasure and the hope you get out of sport. I think that's also the other side of it, which goes beyond just winning trophies. The, the those moments that are like they make you feel a bit sad, maybe, but. Maybe you feel good and like, you know, watching the anthems always gets me kind of teared up, especially watching them back like from the weekend. It's just kind of reminding you that like these teams, Ireland, Munster, Scotland, England, whatever else, they kind of, they represent you and you get to take part in some of the joy that's involved. And it's just, I, I think that it's uh, just, it's got the potential to be such a massive thing in people's lives. I think boiling it down just to trophies, I'm not sure if that's the best thing to do either. I think that's for the professionals the guys who are playing the sport for me I think if you're focusing too much on that as a fan I think you're losing 
a lot of the joy in it. And because again, you 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 don't win those trophies. <laughs> the players do. You just get to enjoy it or feel the, the, the disappointment if you don't win it. Um, but that's the that's the beauty of it. And I think it one can't exist without the other. There can't be no up without a down. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed the game at the weekend. I hope you had a good weekend and I'll be back with a lot of content on Johnny Sexton on a couple of other guys and building towards Main Event Monster which is taking place uh, on Saturday I'm going to be on the radio for that on Limerick Live 95 so enjoy it enjoy the week uh, enjoy the Grand Slam and I'll talk to you again very very soon